All right, architectural splendor, industrial might, creativity, and the leaders who helped shape a nation are just a few of the attributes that have made Chicago one of the greatest cities in America. Add to these the culinary and cultural contributions of almost two centuries of immigrants and migrants, and you have magnificent urban tapestry in a city that features iconic landmarks and historic treasures. David Witter is the author of Amazing Chicago, The City of Big Shoulders, Murder and Mayhem, and he joins us again here on WGN Radio. David, how are you? Fine, thank you. Let's start with Chicago's oldest. You also authored Oldest Chicago, which is one of my favorites. So let's talk about first, including the old water tower. Well, yeah, the old water tower, that's kind of, uh, it's one of the iconic landmarks uh, of Chicago. Oh, yeah. You know, it's on It's on a lot of our uh, tourist advertising. And, and the interesting thing is it's made out, they just, you know, it's made out of Lamont or Joliet limestone, um, and so many buildings in Chicago were made of that. It, the, the, this is actually the middle of the uh, 19th century, in the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, and it's probably one of the few buildings, I think one of five buildings that survived the Chicago fire, you know, here and there, don't quote me on that. And uh, But it's also it's by it's definitely the largest and most notable building that survived the Chicago fire. And it's one of, I'd say, the five symbols of Chicago, you know, is Wrigley Field, the water tower, uh, you know, deep dish pizza, it's right, <laughs> right in there. It's right in, it's in the yeah. team photo. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Old St. Pat's Church is also a focus of this, which is, uh, again, another iconic place in Chicago. Yeah, I just saw a picture on one of the Facebook pages of, of Mayor Richard J. Daly leaving Old St. Pat's. Um, you know, the interesting thing about that is that it was once an immigrant neighborhood, a very, they say, bustling Irish immigrant neighborhood. Uh, there was a school, a church, and, you know, shops and everything, and obviously it became downtown. The loop moved a bit north and west. The church stayed. The school moved over by Belmont and Austin, and most of the people moved either various points of the north side and the suburbs. So the church is, is kind of like the water tower because yeah. of its architectural splendor and its beauty, and since it's a church, it, it was one of the few things that remained, and hopefully it will remain, you know, at least for the next century. Yeah, and then you talk about, you kind of pivot and talk about uh, Peacock Jewelers. There's a storied history there. Yeah, that was, you know, that's an interesting uh, story. It was one of Chicago's firsts, and it um, opened, give me a date on here, I believe 1837, before the city was even uh, incorporated as a city. And um, the thing about Peacock Jewelers is it, it Chicago was just Indians or Native Americans, uh, settlers, plank roads, uh, cabins things of that nature. It was a very primitive city. It was the Wild West. And so, you know, Peacock, C.D. Peacock, um, or his father, one of the Peacocks, opened this store that sold tea sets, silverware, things of that nature. It wasn't, it, it didn't go into the, so much of the jewelry right, right. as we know it now, diamonds and so forth. So, you know, women who came out with their husbands from Philadelphia or New York could uh, add in this mud-soaked town could add a touch of home, and that's how why it succeeded. Yeah, there was no Marshall Fields at that time. There really, you know, Fields and Light or whatever it was at at that those early days. There was really no department store stores, so to speak. So you know, this kind of covered it all, didn't it? Yeah, and it's interesting. They, I have it in the book. Um, they just they are you know what happened is it kind of in the nineties it kind of got sold off into little pieces. The the grand store that was in the Palmer House that many remember. I'm a little too young to remember, but many remember it had this giant copper brass door ornate. And uh, apparently, apparently Mick Jagger went in there one time and bought a 
some rings for his probably female friends. And so it was very storied history. Um, but that closed, and it was just kind of kiosks, at, you know, Old Orchard and various uh, super, uh, supermarkets, shopping centers, shopping malls. And uh, But they apparently they're going to be opening a new one, uh, you know, with a, a landmark store, shiny glass, you know, a brick and mortar, cool. although it's glass. So they're they're yeah they're they're kind of trying to go back to their their grand roots. I love that. Um, you also mentioned some other historical spots that are not on the top of mind. That's why I like your books because you know I feel like I always walk away learning something I didn't know before. But you talk about the uh, Castle Tower of Lions, uh, Geronimo looming over Pulaski, the Route sixty six Gemini Giant, the Bob Newhart Building, all kinds of good stuff. Let's talk about the uh, the Castle Tower of Lions. Yeah, the Castle Tower, that's, that was built by a beer baron named Hoffman. Um, and, and, you know, it kind of makes sense that they, that a beer baron would want to build a castle. Um, you know, that Chicago at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century is just the, the largest beer-producing place in the country. And so he made a good amount of money, so he built this tower. It's uh, kind of near Riverside and Lyons, right along the river there. And it's just this tower, I, I'd imagine five to eight stories high, this brick tower. And at the time, he, he made it into a park, and it was a beer garden. You know, we had them all over the city. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so it was a beer garden. So there was the tower, and there was picnic tables, and you could have boats in, in the river. And it was one of the first parks to have uh, electricity. And so it was, it was a place where, you know, people, especially people of German-American heritage, could go and kind of uh, hang out and celebrate and of course, over the years, like many of these places, he passed away. It deteriorated. Um, you know, it's filled with pigeons and things like that. Um, like many of these these landmarks now, it's not a landmark, but like many of these unofficial landmarks, it's kind of in limbo. Um, they fixed it up enough so that it's not falling apart, but it's not fixed up enough so that it's inhabitable. Hopefully, someone will make a brewery out of it. it it's obviously got a history of a brewery, and it'd be a really cool, cool brewery. So one of the things that isn't, you know, obviously an official landmark, but you talk about the Bob Newhart building where Bob uh, Hartley from the Bob Newhart show lived uh, over in Edgewater. Yeah, like I said, that's in Edgewater on Sheridan Road. And, you know, the story behind that is that in the beginning, he, he leaves his loop office, which 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 is, I guess, which was kind of near the what we call the old Sun-Times building, I believe. Right. And he would, and he would get on a train and, and he said, in typical Bob Newhart fashion, you know, he, he as far as the magic of film, he would get on a train and, and he he went to Evanston and went all these different places and ended up at his at his building on Sheridan Road, you know. But uh, you know that was that was the landmark building. It was about yeah. a three hour uh, journey from downtown yeah, to his yeah, house yeah, for no, sure, yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, let's talk a little bit about music, blues and jazz, of course, here in Chicago. Uh, you talk about Louis Armstrong's former home. Yeah, he lived in um, for from about nineteen. You get the, my dates right, but I say like nineteen twenty six to nineteen twenty nine. He or he maybe a little. He came here before that. He came obviously up from New Orleans. Uh, he was with the King Oliver Band. His and his fiance girlfriend at the time, who he eventually married, Lil Hardin, was also a a great jazz composer and pianist and a groundbreaking female artist of the time but of course in those days they're kind of kept in the background but um they rented a house in bronzeville um and they lived there for the beautiful graystone house and they lived there for three or four years um they redecorated he he got some money and 
the important thing about that is that is for jazz aficionados, which which I am one. Louis Armstrong's years in Chicago were as important as any time in the history of jazz. Um, you know, New Orleans was was Dixieland, and of course, it claims being the birth of jazz, and rightfully mm-hmm. so. But mm-hmm. in Chicago, it, it kind of started breaking away into what we now know as jazz, with you know, extended solos and different instrumentation in the big band. So it was a very uh, cornet chop suey. These were real important recordings and uh, uh, writings in the history of jazz songs. And, you know, it was while you in Chicago. Well, you talk about chess studios. Like they're finally getting a little bit of recognition in, in Chicago. And I know Bob Surratt talks about it all the time. But that was a legendary place to record music here. And, the, you know, is there really is it really focused on as, as part of a tour or landmark? It, it really isn't. Well, yeah. I mean, we don't. Very few people. I'm a sort of a very low level professional blues musician, but um, you know, Chuck Berry, Muddy Waters, um, Willie Dixon, Holland Wolf, Little Walter. These people that I know, but there is also a fair amount of popular music mm-hmm. uh, recorded, semi popular music recorded there. Just, just groundbreaking. I mean, it's, it's perhaps most famous for the Rolling Stones coming there in '64, '65, and they. He recorded a song dedicated to it. And it, as far as you're right about this, and um, the problem with Chicago and Chicago's music is that everything is kind of spread out. So you've got a landmark like the Green Mill that I mentioned in the book, but that's way up on Broadway and Lawrence. And you've got the old places on 43rd that shut down more or less. Then you've got Buddy Guys, which is the 10th and Wabash, Chess Studios. Nothing is really – and then you've got the jazz clubs or blues clubs in Lincoln Park. So nothing is really concentrated, unlike New Orleans, where everything's in the French Quarter and it's very walkable or doable. Um, so that's kind of the problem with Chicago's music history. It's, it's all spread out in different neighborhoods, which makes it hard for the tourists to you know, do it all in one shot. But I don't think there's any reason why the city of Chicago itself couldn't have a little bit more of an organized effort to promote the legacy here of blues and, and, and jazz, too. Well, believe me, I'm, you know, like I say, I'm an amateur blues musician, so I, I, I support that 100%, and I've never understood why. Uh, we've got, we've had several g- different mayors, so you can't blame it on that. Um, and, you know, the, the time is, is kind of slipping away, that, that generation that, uh, you know, that the Rolling Stones, those kind of people, the people, the, I guess they were the hippies, and they got, they got to the blues through the Rolling Stones, and Eric Clapton were still, were still performing in their 80s. You know those those people are are are, are not is around as much, and yeah. but we really have to do something with chess, yeah, and record roll. You know, Buddy Guy actually tried to do something when Richard M. Daly was mayor, uh, but you know there there are too many people who have at the time. There's just too many people with conflicting interests, and this could be a whole other show. Um, just too many people with conflicting interests and wanting to get their hand in the pie. And that's why one of the reasons why it never worked out. Speaking of music, you also talk about Chief O'Neill, and there's a there, there's a great bar and restaurant owned by my friends the McKinney's that that truly honors uh, this police chief in Chicago. But I mean, Irish music and, and and documenting it on sheet music wouldn't have been a thing if it wasn't for Chief O'Neill. Yeah, he's a, you know he's on the cover, and so all you Chief O'Neill fans, there's uh, a very cool picture of him. But he was he had an amazing story. Um, besides just the uh, Besides just the music, I mean, he he came here from Ireland, and you know, he then he ended up on a ship and by by Australia. Then he went to San Francisco. Then he was then Kansas City is somewhat of a cowboy. 
and then he ended up coming to Chicago as a uh, first a police officer and then a police chief. And uh, you know, from that, from his position as chief, he had a home base, he had a little money, and so what he started doing was hiring, bringing Irishmen from Ireland who are musicians and uh, sort of sponsoring them and giving them jobs in the police force. And in that way, he, he kind of assembled a cadre of Irish musicians from which he could get the sheet music. Uh, he wrote several books, you know, just containing volumes of Irish sheet music. And, and um, so basically he saved it. And, you know, there's, there's the, the Chicago, Chicago PD, I believe it's called, mm-hmm. and the show that's on there on strike now. But um, they actually have a, they have a character called Chief O'Neill. <laughs> that is, you know, obviously named after him, as well as the restaurant. And there was a play in 2012, I believe. So he's getting some recognition. But it's just part of this wonderful ethnic stereotype that we have here that some people know about, most don't, you know. And it's just these, these stories are all amazing. And there's a lot of great stories in the book, Amazing Chicago. The author is David Anthony Witter, and there's more with him next. Talking about the book, Amazing Chicago, The City of Big Shoulders, Murder and Mayhem, David Anthony Witter is joining us. We have a long history of greed, corruption, crime, and so forth, but there was the Iroquois Theater fire, uh, you know, circus freaks, train wrecks, uh, shallow graves and forest preserves that have made Chicago a city filled with bad spirits. Um, you know, we've got we've got some ghostly sites here, too. Yeah, as we approach, the, today's, as we approach the Halloween season, we're turning the corner. I believe the first day of autumn will be soon. Um, there, there's a lot of ghostly sites here because there was a lot of avarice. There was a lot of crime. Um, and once again, it's sort of linked with corruption. The Iroquois theater fire was the greatest or worst, uh, tragedy, uh, as far as humans perishing in a fire in American history. Um, and that was just primarily because of graft, because the, the, the owners, you know, cut corners, they bribed the building inspectors, they, they nailed doors shut and they put plywood over windows because they didn't want people sneaking in and they bribed the fire inspector and they wanted it built earlier. So they cut all kinds of corners. They wanted it to be open before Christmas. So the thing was, you know, built shoddily and there was no fireproof uh, security there. And, you know, that was just all obviously that the inspectors took the bribe and let it go. And, and that's what happened. And, you know, similar, um, you know, we had similar with the Eastland in 1915, yeah. that was the greatest, uh, maritime loss of life in, in American history. And it was a similar situation. You know, the boat could only hold so many people, and uh, the people were, you know, going on and, I guess, paying their admission. So they said, hey, they looked the other way, and the, thing, the boat capsized. And it was a terrible tragedy. And, you know, these kind of things, you know, they add up. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, avarice in Chicago. There's a lot of bad spirits. And there's the Dunning site, which is probably the most haunted site yeah. Um, yeah. estimates by many different sources all agree is my mean is 38,000 tens of thousands of people were buried there between wow. right before the civil war and the late 1990s. It was a tuberculosis sanitarium. It was a place for the mentally ill. It was a pauper's center. And what they ended up doing, these people didn't have money for proper burial. So they just kind of buried them around the Dunning area and as uh, the new Wright College was being built, they were discovering bones. There's a Dunning Shopping Center at about Irving uh, Park mm-hmm. and Oak Park, a little bit east of there, where they discovered bones. Uh, the kids, <laughs> there's a there's a Taft 
uh, a tap building for the freshman building. Um, the, the kids there all know that they say it's haunted and they, they were, they were bones dug up there. So in, in the, once again, it, it, just, it has to do with this corruption. Just is okay. Where do we put these people? They're poor. They have no relatives. No one's claiming them. Uh, let's just, let's just throw them, them there. So obviously there's a lot of hauntedness and avarice, uh, that happened. There's also a lot of suffering that happened in that building too, because you had mentally ill people, yeah. people with tuberculosis. So talk about you know bad spirits. No question, no question. You also talk about food from Italian beef to deep dish, the tamale, the hot dog as well. And there's so much more in the book, Amazing Chicago. The author's David Anthony Witter. David, always a pleasure, and honestly, a great read as always. Thank you. N- nice talking to you. Thanks S- once again. Same here. Thank you, sir. Right news is next.